think you're kidding. So we're uh, finishing up our series that we've been in all month long on the top relationship killers. And as Shira said a second ago, if you've missed a week, uh, you can always find all of our messages uh, on Spotify. Oh, we just, something just clicked off. Oh, now it's rebooting. Okay, we good? Are we good? Tech? Because it kind of sparked up here. <laughs> I mean, I want service to be memorable, but... Not if I'm in flames, uh, so <laughs> yes, all right, cool, um, and so um, in thinking about all this stuff and in our series all month long and kind of the top relationship killers, um, I, I kind of sat down this week and, and made a list uh, of common relationship myths, and, and really these have been born out of like real conversations I've had with people both in, uh, in counseling them through like pre-marriage stuff before I perform their wedding ceremony or or people that have been in our church that uh, have hit a, a tough spot in their relationship and have come to me for some help. And, and, and honestly, most of them sound pretty ridiculous when you say them out loud. Uh, and, and so we might not ever actually admit to believing these myths, but uh, like I said, I've found that so many people are actually living like some of these things are true. So I wanted to share a couple of uh, uh, relationship myths uh, with you this morning or myths about marriage. So the number one, uh, no, they're not in any particular order, but the first one is this, that the key to the relationship is finding the right person. And, uh, and I love Disney, but this is kind of the Disneyfication of how love works, that if you just find the right person, that everything will click and it'll all be easy. And, and of course, you guys all know that because you found the right person. Everything's just been easy in your relationship, right? Like, uh, and number two is that your family background won't have really any effect on your marriage at all. Uh, like it's zero. Like you don't even, it won't ever even come up. Like it just, it just, it's like it never existed. Number three is that sex is no big deal. It's just physical. It's like working out, but funner. Um, and uh, number four is that sex is the biggest deal of all. Uh, that the quality of your relationship depends on how good the sex is. And uh, that just isn't true. Uh, number five, once we get married, that they will change. <laughs> oh, gosh, that one's awesome. And trust me, you got the best version of them when you were dating, I promise. Uh, because we all date, you know, we're dating each other's personalities, but we marry their character. And uh, so make sure you know what you're marrying before you actually say, I do. Uh, number six, having kids solves your relationship problems. It makes you closer and increases your happiness. Um, and by the way, having kids is just a magnifier. It's only going to magnify whatever's already there. So if there's already pain and brokenness, if you're already sort of struggling, it's just going to magnify all that. Uh, number seven, when people love each other, uh, there's never hardly ever any conflict or problems. How many people are married? Just raise your hand if you're married. Wow, that's most people in the room. How many would say that you've experienced some sort of small argument or disagreement or sometimes some, some little conflict within the last month? How many, just within the last four weeks, you've experienced, so okay, probably two-thirds of the people that raised their hand. So yeah, like it's, conflict happens. I actually ran across this picture of a sign that somebody made for their living room, and, it, and I just, I, I thought I'd show it to you because for any other reason, it just made me laugh. So it, it says this, it says, we've been through a lot together, but most of it was your fault. Uh, 
I love, I don't know why, but I just, uh, I love that. But conflict in relationships is always fun, isn't it? Right, right. When it comes to conflict, people tend to fall into two categories. You have the fighters. Where are my fighters at? You love to fight. And you have the avoiders. Where's my avoiders at? They're okay. They're not sure if they should raise their hand. They're just like, I mean, I don't, do I admit it? Uh, And most of the time, a fighter marries an avoider. Um, and that's a lot of fun to figure out how to navigate that. Every once in a while, two fighters marry each other. Are there any of those people? Like two, okay. You, he's like, nope, I'm not admitting it. I'm just gonna, I'm, I'm gonna avoid this fight. All right. So, um, man, two fighters marrying each other. That's a lot of sparks. Uh, and, then, and then you have two avoiders. Sometimes two avoiders marry each other, and they don't ever know that anybody's ever mad. Uh, but if you're new to church, you might actually expect to hear that conflict is bad or that somehow you should always just be happy and get along with everyone. But I'm actually going to talk to you about the opposite today. And, and that is this idea that we, we shouldn't go looking for it. But when conflict comes, we actually need to lean into it. Like, like have you ever had a friendship or a relationship end, but you didn't know why? Like, like one day you just got a note or a voicemail or a text and then they were gone. No explanation, no conversation, or or maybe you didn't even get that kind of communication, right? They just ghosted you. They just disappeared, unfriended you, blocked your number, whatever, and you have no idea what happened or why, right? I've had that happen to me so many times. I honestly, I I don't even, I've lost count. Like, and, and the truth is it happens in love and in marriage too, right? Every pastor I know, has had countless conversations where someone sits down in their office, they sit down in the chair, they just take a deep breath and say, my husband or my wife just left left me and I didn't even know there was a problem. Their spouse had stuffed and sidelined their feelings for so long that they had no idea how to even start the conversation. And so they they just left. It happens more than we think, right? And isn't it strange that we would rather exit a relationship than have to honestly explore why it's not working? And so through this series, we've talked about relationship killers like having communication problems. That's kind of where we started and how most of the problems in our relationships flow out of a problem in communication. And then we talked about being inflexible and demanding your own way. And and last week, this idea of focusing on what's wrong. And if you're like me, at some level, all of those make sense as to why they would, why they're not good in relationship. But but what may surprise you is that avoiding conflict is actually at the top of the list of habits and patterns that destroy, destroy our relationships. See, when relationships uh, have conflict, relationships actually die when we stuff and we delay and we deny and then later explode or just decide we're out, we're, we exit. And the truth is, if you're in a relationship with another human being for more than just a few minutes, if there isn't any conflict, someone's not telling the truth. Like someone's not being truthful. So I am, I am a very experienced and capable avoider. So this message actually hit really close to home as I was kind of pulling it all together in the last couple of weeks. So uh, like I, I know just for my own, um, my, my own feeling, could it, just to make sure I know I'm in good company. If you're an avoider, would you just raise your hand real quick again? So, so thank you. I feel so much better 
about myself. Um, so w- when you're an avoider, conflict is really, really uncomfortable. It's very difficult. A few years ago, some researchers at BYU that were studying relationships, they made a breakthrough discovery, you guys, and they published their findings, and this is not a joke. You can go, it must be true, it's on the internet. Um, but this, this was their finding. They said there is a negative correlation between happiness levels in relationships and people trying to settle disputes or resolve conflict through texting. Um, yes, that was an actual study that needed to be, see, wasn't that helpful? Like, don't you wish somebody would pay you lots of money to reach, research something obvious, right? Like, oh, there's a positive correlation between your waistline and how much fast food you eat. In other news, tacos are delicious and should be eaten on more than just Tuesdays. But here's the truth. When it comes to us and the people we love, great relationships are actually full of healthy conflict and even sometimes confrontation. Now, as an avoider, this hurts me to admit, but here's the best way I think I can say it. When we avoid conflict, it leads to shallow relationships because avoidance is actually a form of dishonesty. And intimacy and trust are built through truth and being transparent with one another. See, we all want to be known. We all want to be loved. We all want to be accepted for who we really are. But that can't actually happen if we're never vulnerable enough to let them see us when things aren't perfect between us. Now, the scriptures are full of all kinds of wisdom for our relationship. And one of the things I love about the Bible is that it's full of stories of real people in all of their humanity and all of their brokenness and messiness and, and that God didn't sanitize any of it for us. Like it, it's people at their worst moments. We get to read about it and learn from it. But that can also make it really difficult in a series like this because there's not really a, a, a healthy family that we can kind of open the Bible and look at and read about. I mean, Jesus obviously was a great example, but he was human, but also God, which meant that he was perfect. Anybody ever been in a relationship with someone who was perfect? Way to go. Nobody, nobody <laughs> took the bait, all right? Just, just testing you. Um, but he was perfect, right? He, Jesus never actually made mistakes. If you had a conflict with Jesus, I'm sorry to tell you, you're wrong. Like you, it's on you. Like he also knew what you were thinking. He knew when you were telling the truth. He knew when you had like a secret motive. Who wants to be in a relationship with that guy? Like nobody, right? So there are a lot of examples though in the scriptures of what not to do. In fact, one of the most famous people in the whole scriptures was, was a guy who was a serious conflict avoider and it caused all kinds of problems for him in his life, between him and lots of people, but especially between him and his wife. Uh, his name, when he first gets introduced to us in the scriptures in the book of Genesis, his name was Abram. Later it gets changed to Abraham. Uh, and so I wanted to actually kind of give you a handful, exam- a handful of examples from his life uh, and, and kind of pick them apart and talk about them a little bit um, while, we're, while we're here today. So in Genesis chapter 12, beginning with verse 11, It says this, as as he, this is speaking of Abram, was approaching the border of Egypt, Abram said to his wife, Sarai, look, you are a very beautiful woman. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, let's kill him. Then we can have her. So please tell them you're my sister. 
then they will spare my life and treat me well because of their interest in you. Wow, what a classy guy, right? Like, I mean, hun, you are so beautiful. These people are going to want to kill me. So just say you're my sister. And they won't, they won't catch on by the way we treat each other, like that we're husband and wife. They'll, they'll think we're just weird, all right? Uh, Genesis chapter 20. Abraham moved to the south of the Negev and lived there for a while between Kadesh and Shur, and then he moved to Gerar. And while he was living there as a foreigner, Abraham introduced his wife Sarah by saying, she is my sister. So King Abimelech of Gerar sent for Sarah and had her brought to him at his palace. So this is this guy's go-to move, apparently, right? It's like, if, if there's something that he feels is about to happen, he's like, say you're my sister, say you're my sister. Right? It's pretty weaselly, right? And I, by the way, I looked these guys, I looked Abraham and Sarah up on social media, and I think Abe may have been overestimating the attractiveness of his wife. I mean, look, uh, look, I mean, she's, she's a fine-looking lady, I'm not going to lie, but I'm not sure she's kill your husband so you can have her for yourself attractive. And I mean, he's looking kind of dumpy as well. So come on, Abe, you're not a, this is exactly a catch either. So also... These situations were all just potential conflicts. There weren't actually any conflict that actually happened. It's just in his imagination. Have you ever avoided a conversation simply because of how you imagined it might go? Where you play out the conversation in your head, and so you assume you know how they're going to respond and what they're going to say and their, their best arguments, and you know how it's all going to go. And so, so you tell yourself, oh, like pulling this thing out in the open, it's just going to be so messy, and it's going to be painful, and it's not even going to be one conversation. It's going to have to be a series of conversations, and then we're going to have to make changes, and what if they don't want to do the work, and we're better off just not talking about it. Anybody ever done that? Yeah, I've, I've never done that either. But what I've found is that like Abram, the problem is that, it, it, that we're trying so hard you know, to avoid in our imagination actually creates conflict, creates real conflict that would have never actually existed in the first place simply because we, we, tr- we were trying to avoid some potential situation. But it wasn't just the lying and saying that his wife was his sister. Uh, there's another story in Genesis chapter 13, uh, beginning of verse 6. It says this, says, but the land could not support. So Abram got, got pretty wealthy, and his, his nephew Lot uh, had been kind of living with him and his family, and he got wealthy as well. And this is where that's, that part of the story picks up. It says, the land could not support both Abram and Lot with all of their flocks and herds living so close together. So disputes broke out between the herdsmen. Uh, of these two guys. Verse 8, finally Abram said to Lot, let's not allow this conflict to come between us or our herdsmen. After all, we're very close relatives and the whole countryside is open to you. So take your choice of any section of land that you want and we will separate. If you want the land to the left, then I'll take the land on the right. If you prefer the land on the right, then I'll go left. Now, this one might be a little bit more subtle, uh, but if you're an experienced avoider, you may recognize it because on the surface, it looks like Abram's just being a good dude, like he's being noble guy. I mean, he's, he's like, you know, let's not fight. You go one way, I'll go the other, which is not necessarily a problem, but the problem is that Lot, as I said a second ago, is Abram's nephew. So Abram's older, 
He's wiser. He knows the land. He knows all the surrounding areas. He could have actually stepped into the conflict and, and, and began to work through or help them find a resolution or at the very least kind of guide Lot through the process of where to move his family and his flocks to, but he doesn't do any of that. And ultimately where Lot chose to go eventually ended up destroying his whole family in a really famous story about two cities called Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, obviously, Abram isn't responsible for that part. That's called codependence. But I wonder if it it all could have just been avoided if Abram would have handled this specific moment and this specific conflict differently than what he did. But instead, he kind of passively sort of dodges the situation, puts all the responsibility on on Lot to, to resolve it. Now, here's the really unfortunate part for me is that if I'm being honest, I can really relate to this part. As I said a second ago, I'm an avoider. And for all of this series, this is, you know, there's, there's been parts of each week that certainly I've had to grapple with. But for the most part, I, you know, like I'm pretty good at communication. Uh, I, I'm a pretty flexible guy. I'm not that demanding. You know, I'm really positive by nature, so I don't focus on stuff that's wrong. But when it came to this week, man, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm uncomfortable even talking about this because by nature, I want to avoid conflict. I was six years old when my parents got divorced and there was so much conflict and turmoil in my family. And my role, I became the person in my family that kind of, or at least in my mind, that I would go into rooms and sort of smooth things over. I could always get people to laugh and make people feel better. And so it got ingrained in my DNA to just avoid conflict. See, the truth is, our capacity for self-deception is incredible, right? I've avoided conflict under the pretense. I'm not proud of this. I've avoided conflict under the pretense of taking the high road, of deferring to the other person. I've actually found that you can get so skilled at avoiding conflict, you can actually do it and get others to applaud how selfless you are and how noble you are. Look at that guy. He refused just... What a gem. He won't even fight with them about it. The problem is, is when that's you, you know the ugly truth. You know you're just being a coward. You know you just don't want to experience the discomfort of sharing how you really think and how you really feel because you're afraid of how they'll respond. A few minutes ago, I I, I talked about how great relationships are full of healthy conflict and confrontation. But what does that actually mean? What does that look like? Because for many of us, all we knew in our, you know, all you knew in your family was yelling and screaming or throwing things and slamming doors and sarcastic jabs or belittling or dirty looks or eye rolls or name calling. And, and those were just the kids, right? Like it gets way worse with the adults. Or maybe in your family, it was the opposite, right? It was the forced and fake smiles. It was the hushed tones. It was the don't let anybody see. It was the pretending and sweeping things under the rug and the lies and the passive aggression and the denial of all the things that are going on. See, we actually avoid conflict when we believe that the only outcomes are to conquer or to be conquered. My son is 19 and personality-wise, uh, he, uh, this is him. Like he, he's at the stage of his life where he avoids conflict because he's either, he, he sees it in one of two ways. I'm either going to win or I'm going to lose. There's no way for us to both win. I'm going to be right and you're going to be wrong or vice versa. 
Have you ever known somebody like that, right? For me to win, you have to lose. So I was sharing this with him on, on Friday night, and he's like, oh, man, I need to listen to this message, Dad. I was like, look up the podcast. <laughs> but this idea of it's either conquer or be conquered, it, comes, it just comes out of all of our unhealthy experiences. So l- let me take a moment and kind of redefine what we're talking about, because conflict, honestly, is just two different people discovering and discussing their differences, which... Sounds innocent enough, right? But it, like, if that's true, why does you know, anticipate, anticipating conflict stir up so much angst and anxiety for so many of us? And the truth is, is because it feels so risky to be vulnerable. Because once I share, once I confront them, once I tell them what ha- you know, what's going on and how I'm feeling, what happens then, right? What, how do they respond? And all of that situation is now completely out of my control. And so since I can't control it, I'm just going to avoid it. And the truth is you're responsible to other people, but for yourself meaning you can't control them. And the pr- biggest pro- one of the biggest problems in relationships is that we take responsibility for the other person and not for ourselves. Now, I, I don't know uh, if you've noticed this or not in your relationships, but not talking about strong feelings doesn't make them go away. In fact, they become more intense the more that you pretend that they don't exist. Because when there's something kind of stewing below the surface, the longer you wait, the worse it gets for both of you. And so what we're going to actually see play out between Abraham and his wife, Sarah, is exactly that. So this another part of their story is found in Genesis chapter 16, beginning with verse 2. It says this, it says, Sarah, I said to Abraham, Abram, the Lord has prevented me from having children, so go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children through her. And Abram agreed with Sarai's proposal. So Abram had sexual relations with Hagar and she became pregnant. But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her mistress, Sarai, with contempt. Then Sarai said to Abram, this is your fault. I put my servant into your arms, but now that she's pregnant, she treats me with contempt. The Lord will show who's wrong, me or you. Abram replied, look, she's your servant, so deal with her as you see fit. Now, you don't have to be a relationship expert to know that it doesn't matter what the historical or cultural context of this story is, that is a galactically stupid decision on both of their parts. Hey, honey, like, I really want to have a child, but since I can't conceive, would you sleep with my best friend? (laughs) What? And then Abram still doesn't take any, any ownership in the situation. He's like, look, I'll, it was your idea. She's your servant, so whatever you, you just got to deal with it. <laughs> and things kind of continue to fall apart. Eventually, Sarah does get pregnant because God had made a promise to them. And so they have a son named Isaac. And here's how it kind of all goes down in Genesis 29, or 21, verse 9. It says, Sarah saw Ishmael. Ishmael was the son of Abraham and her Egyptian servant, Hagar, and, uh, and Ishmael, like most older brothers, was making fun of her son, Isaac. So she turned to Abraham and said, get rid of that slave woman and her son. This upset Abraham very much because Ishmael was his son. Verse 14, Abraham got up early the next morning, prepared food in a container of water, and then he sent Hagar away with her son. By the way, God looks out for the both of them and they end up okay. One of the most interesting parts 
of the story of Abraham is though, it, for me, as you kind of read and you go back and read it uh, this week, if you want, is there's, there's, you start to see like a transformation of his wife, Sarah, right? She starts off really passive where she's willing to lie for him and tell people that she's his sister. But ultimately she ends up pretty darn aggressive, right? And, and I can't help but wonder as I was kind of reading this story, I wonder if she spent so much time watching other people push her husband around or watching him let others push him around that she just started pushing him around too. See, what, what we do know is that the world that they lived in was extremely patriarchal at this point in history. He had all of the power in their relationship. So at the very least, for her to talk to him the way that she's talking to him, for her to say the things that she's like, at the very least, she's just completely lost all respect for her husband. See, here's the deal. Avoiding conflict eventually has the opposite effect of what we think it will or what we want it to. Right? Avoiding conflict and going along to get along doesn't actually bring us closer. In the end, it drives us apart. But when we handle conflict in a healthy way, that doesn't mean perfect. You don't got to handle it perfectly because you're not going to handle it perfectly. You're not Jesus. But when you handle conflict in a healthy way, those people that we love will have respect for us on the other side. They'll have more respect for us, not less. And so Abraham and Sarah both I mean, they both had to have known that things were kind of moving in a, an unhealthy, in a bad direction, but they both ignored it or they just didn't know how to stop it. But like a broken bone that we just sort of baby and, and, but refuse to address, like it never gets reset. It never makes it better. It only makes it, only makes it worse because in the end, us hiding doesn't actually keep us from hurting them or keep us from getting hurt. It actually just keeps the relationship from healing. Because confrontations actually clarify reality. They, they label the tension. They trace the pain to its source. They shine a light on the hidden forces that you could both feel but maybe not see. And, and they actually become a solid place from which you can move forward together. See, believe it or not, it's often the, the uncomfortable conversation that actually puts us on the same page so that at least we can stop guessing where the disagreements are all coming from. In the end, we may not actually end up agreeing on this one issue, but that's not the point. Sometimes the conflict is the resolution. And the health of your relationship isn't, isn't measured by how little you disagree, but it's measured by how you handle it when you actually do. And so, honestly, if you are a Jesus follower and you're here this morning, like here's, the, here's kind of the bad news is like this stuff really isn't optional for us. In fact, in Matthew chapter five, verse nine, Jesus said it this way, blessed are the peacemakers for they, it's those people who will be called the sons and daughters of God. Now I love that, like that God's kids will be the ones who will be known for bringing peace. If you have kids, I'm sure that you, like me, you have traits and passions and habits and a way of being in the world that you're trying to pass on to your kids. I'm trying to make sure my kids grow up to be Dallas Cowboy fans, <laughs> among other things. I already failed once. My oldest son is a Steelers fan. 
dad failed. But we all have things that we're trying to instill in them, things that, that, that we believe are, are what's good and right, the way to live your life in the world, right? That we're trying to instill in them. And what Jesus is saying is that we're never more like our heavenly father than we actually step into conflict and begin to make peace. See, the absence of conflict doesn't equal love or maturity or godliness. It's the presence of peacemaking. In order for you to be a peacemaker, there has to be conflict that you have to make peace out of. Jesus is telling we're not, there's never a moment in your life where you're going to be more like God, more like your creator, more like your heavenly father when you li- than when you live your life in a way that brings about peace in your relationship and in the lives of the people around you. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. And so he uses this, this word, that word peacemaker, that, that means to make or to build or manufacture or construct something. And there's all kinds of gifts and abilities in the world. Of, and, and, and the truth is, is making things or building things is not one of mine. I actually made a list of things that I can make. Here it is, boom, noise, mess, trouble. Those, that's it. That's the extent of things I can make. Uh, I was going to put my bed on there, but my wife said I don't really do that correctly half the time, so I can't put that down there. But if you're a baker, a writer, a musician, a builder, an artist, an engineer, like you have all these abilities to take raw, mater- raw materials and make something from them. Maybe like, maybe like me, like there's not a lot that you feel like you can make or build, but I'm here to tell you no matter who you are, no matter what your background, no matter what gifts and abilities you have, you were created with a divine capacity and a divine ability to make peace with and for other people. By the way, the difference between a peacemaker and a peacekeeper is significant. Peacekeepers actually never get to live in the peace that they spend all of their time and energy desperately trying to preserve because the conflict never gets dressed. Finally, if you're in a relationship and they never confront you, that's a red flag. If you're in a relationship and all they do is confront you, that is also a red flag. Now, there's a tragic sort of postscript to Abraham's legacy in this story. It's found in Genesis 25:18, speaking of his son that he had with his wife's servant Hagar, that son was named Ishmael. This is what it says. It says, Ishmael and his descendants occupied the region of Havilah to Shur, and they, there they lived in open hostility toward all of their relatives. Whew. See, maybe the most heartbreaking part of avoiding conflict is instead of resolving it, it, actually, it just punts it to other people. Instead of actually dealing with the conflict, it just pushes the damage out to others. It doesn't go away. It just gets pawned off on the people around us. It gets pawned off on our kids, sometimes rippling out for generations. How you handle conflict when it arises, that's the measure of the health and the love in your relationship. So there's a roadmap, and this is where we're going to end. Ephesians chapter 4 verses 25 and 26, the New Testament. So the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, and the Apostle Paul spent his time, he started in opposition to Jesus and persecuting Christians and trying to kill the movement of Jesus. Then he had this encounter with Jesus on the road, completely changed his life. From then on, he spent his life traveling around the Mediterranean, starting churches, telling everybody about Jesus. 
and then he spent his life as he was starting these churches reflecting on who Jesus was and what he did and the things he said and trying to take that message and that movement and extrapolate it out and apply it to life. And so when he wrote these letters, he was writing them to churches and that's what he was doing. He was, he was trying to give them practical advice about how to get along and how to treat each other, and how to operate your family and what the church looks like. And it was all sort of reflecting back on the person of Jesus. In Ephesians chapter four, verse 25, he says this. He says, so stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth for we are all parts of the same body and don't sin by letting your anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. So he says, stop telling lies to yourself and to the other person. Stop pretending like there's nothing wrong. Stop pretending like it's something other than it is. Stop pretending like it's only, you know, it's all only one person's fault. Stop telling lies and he says tell the truth because we're all interconnected he uses the word body right he says stop telling you know tell the truth because it affects more than just you when you don't tell the truth we all feel the effects of the cover-up this is true in your family if you're not telling the truth your kids get old enough they know something ain't right they can't put their finger on it they may not be able to put words to it but they know something is off He's saying we're all interconnected. He says, and then don't sit in your anger. Don't stuff your frustrations. Don't let them fester. Don't, don't give them time to mutate into something worse. By the way, in case it's not totally clear, when we talk about confronting the issue or conflict, like we, we mean to actually confront the issue with the person that you have the issue with, right? To talk to people, not about them. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to talk about people rather than to talk to them? I, I, I've actually had this problem in my life. And the reason, part of the reason is, is just a huge part of the way that I'm wired. I process life verbally. So when, they, when things happen, I want to talk about them. I want to tell people. So when there's something good that happens, I want to tell people. When there's something bad that happens, I want to tell people. When I'm stressed, I want to talk it out. When I'm hurt, I want to talk it out. The problem is that in the past, right, uh, that, that has been a cover to talk about people when I shouldn't have talked about them, which, you know, that's called, right? Gossip, which is relational poison. And he's going, don't do that. Talk to the person. So you can't solve a problem with somebody by talking to everyone but that person. Which brings us to the final step of what the Apostle Paul wrote in his letter. Or what I'm going to add in to what he said, I guess. Is regu- to regularly clear the air in your relationships with the people that you love. Like, what if you just made a regular habit in your relationship to ask this really uncomfortable question? Is there anything we're not saying to each other? Is there anything we're not telling one another? If so, what is it? And why? Why is it so uncomfortable to say that you feel that way? What, what if we just created the space to be open and honest with the people that we love? See, if you're an avoider, this is not easy. You're probably super sweaty at this point because you're just thinking about all this stuff and you're about to hyperventilate. But I'm telling you, I, I'm not great at this stuff, but I'm way better than I used to be. And I'm proof that you can do it. 
You can make it. You can be healthier than you are today. See, if your relationship is too fragile to bring up and resolve issues, it's too fragile to last. But I have a feeling that it's stronger than you think, and more importantly, I have a feeling that you're stronger than you think. You can have healthy conflicts, but you have to summon the courage to stop hiding, to stop lying to yourself, to stop deceiving, to tell the truth, to not let anger get a hold of your heart. Let's pray together.